0: Here we come, we come to the book of Samuel, 1st and 2nd Samuel tonight. The ultimate Sunday school story is found in these books. What is it? David and Goliath. David and Goliath. What are some others? David and... David and dot, dot, dot. That's right. Yep. Everything about the life of David. Yes, the call of Samuel. I actually had that on here and took it off. <laughs> so, yes, the call of Samuel is a famous one. He goes to Eli and says, What are you saying, Eli? And Eli says, I didn't call you. Um, it's actually God calling him.
1: Yeah. I, mean, I guess it would be included in that, but even before that, with a single mom wanting a son and then dedicating him to the Lord, if she gets him in, for being faithful in mm-hmm. that promise as well.
0: mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. What does that mirror in the New Testament? Mary. Yeah, the song of Mary. We're going to get to that. We're going to actually hopefully get to the comparison there of um, Mary's song along with, what was Samuel's mother's song? a name? Yeah. Hannah's song. Thank you. Uh, and we're going to compare those here. <clears throat> well, let's dive in. We're going to cover two books in one. Uh, originally, it was one book. But when it was translated from Hebrew into Greek, uh, Hebrew takes up this much space, and to cover that same amount in Greek takes this much space. So it ended up taking up two scrolls, which is why it ended up getting divided into two books. But it was originally one, one book. Samuel was, as Stephen pointed out a couple weeks ago, the final judge. And he served as a judge in the roles of priest and prophet. And I thought that the Bible Project did a really good job with the, uh, the overall structure and the outline. So you can look there at the bottom of your handout and see the outline. I thought the arcs were really helpful. Um, first of all, before, before we go any farther, uh, I'd like to point out that at the very bottom in the footnotes, it says, um, in our Miles Van Pelt chapter that it was, uh, I, I did not update that to the newest chapter. That's still left over from Judges, so I apologize. Hopefully by the time this is posted online, if the handouts are also online, they will be up to date. Uh, so you'll see there Saul. Well, there's first of all, the, the lives of Samuel, Saul, and David are really what's covered in these books. Samuel's uh, the first seven chapters, uh, he, he, although he does continue. I think he dies in chapters 24, 25 uh, of 1 of Samuel. And then Saul comes in in chapter 8, and his rise... Um, precedes then the rise of David and David's rise correlates with the fall of Saul uh, with many famous stories and that and then David's story continues all the way through first Samuel uh, into second Samuel and then the last few chapters um, are um, the, the kind of the, the prologue the Samuel uh, excuse me epilogue the Samuel epilogue so David is really the main focus. Kingship is really the main, main focus. Um, and so when you look at who David is, he illustrates what is good about a godly King. Although his shortcomings reveal and remind us of his insufficiency and the need for the ultimate King. So we're gonna learn a lot about what is good about the coming King from the line of David, but also we're going to see that David was not enough. He, he was not the ultimate uh, King. Thoughts right now about the book? Any pointers? Anything you want to highlight before we jump in? Yes. Samuel
1: is not the focus for the majority. Why is it named after Samuel?
0: Samuel wrote the first chunk of it. Yeah, that's that's the. I know it says authorship is unknown. It it's, it seems likely Samuel wrote the first first uh, twenty some chapters. It's also really interesting to remember that during David's reign, he was writing the Psalms and before, but a lot of them during his reign. And so you get a glimpse into the heart of David as king when you look at Psalms. So I think what I want us to do is actually start in the Psalms. So open up to the book of Psalms. When you hear of a king, you think of power, you think of oftentimes, unfortunately, abusive power. You think of someone who... Um, uses the power for his own glory and who often disregards those below him. We find out David was not set on his own glory as a whole. Um, Now, as a sinful person, of course he was. Of course, we see examples where he does fall into sin um, quite dramatically. But we also get a glimpse into uh, the fact that The Spirit was with David, and the Spirit was growing David as he does us, as we talked about before, earlier. Um, Spirit was at work. And and the Psalms, we'll just look at Psalm 2 here, uh, and then we'll look at 6, 7, 18, and 93. But Psalm 2 um, says, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves... And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He's already setting himself up as different than the other rulers. He doesn't rule like the kings of the other nations. They set themselves up against the Lord. And then he proceeds in verses four through six to say, um, God's laughing. You, you, you think that your power is going to prevail? I've set my king in Zion. Um, So David, he's leading with dependence upon the Lord here. Flip over to Psalm 6. Who does he cry out to in trouble? The Lord. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I'm languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubling. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? He's crying out to God in in chapter 7. He says outright, O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. He doesn't even turn to his own power. He turns to God's power when he's being pursued. He realizes that there is no one who can deliver him except God. Psalm 18. His heart is set on the Lord. He says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. He led very humbly independence upon the Lord. And then lastly, Psalm 93. And of course, we're just cherry picking here, just picking a few. Even as David is on the throne, he knows, Psalm 93, it is the Lord who reigns. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. I've heard it said that often in the book of Samuel, when David is described as prince, that is... Really, a secondary ruler to the Lord who reigns, to the Lord who sits enthroned, and um, and whether or not you want to take the an understanding of that word prince to the end and, and draw that conclusion with that word, you at least know that David's thought was very much that he saw the Lord God as the supreme authority, and he was the subservient one, the under uh, the, the prince under the king. So that kind of gives you just a little bit of insight into um, David's heart as he ruled. Any questions, comments on this before we jump into the overarching structure here? We learn a lot about Christ, too, by looking at David. You see how uh, Jesus also was the one who submitted himself to the Father's authority and to the Father's will and led with humility for the good of others. We saw that in Psalm 22 this morning. Uh, so the rise of Samuel is in, um, I'm going to flip over here to First Samuel in my Bible. First Samuel chapters one, two, and three, this was the the birth and then the call of uh, Samuel. And then the Philistines take the ark. in chapter four, it is returned then in chapter six. Uh, this is all still during the um, in that first section about Samuel. And then there's the institution of the monarchy in 1 Samuel 7. And this is where um, Israel demands a king in chapter 8. Samuel warns against kings. Saul was chosen to be king. Anybody remember why Saul was chosen? Handsome and tall. Handsome and tall. That's That's what we're looking for in a leader. It was really interesting... Look in 1 Samuel 8, verses 19 and 20. There are a few reasons here that Israel wanted a king. I see three reasons. What are they? 1 Samuel 8, verses 19 and 20. They want to be like everybody else, okay. Yeah. So a king can fight their battles. Oh, the irony! First, King Saul does is hide. <laughs> he hides in the baskets. His baskets—is that what it was? But yeah, he in the luggage. That's it. Yeah, he hides among the luggage. <laughs> and then, um, look, flip over to chapter seventeen. They're in the Valley of Ela. They got a king to fight their battles for them, and what does King Saul do? Before Goliath, he won't go out. He's an utter failure of even what Israel wanted for a king. Sorry, so you see, you see um, Saul in chapters 13 through 15. And you see David come on the scene in chapter 16. He's anointed, and then uh, he fights Goliath. And, and that David and Saul continue through the end of 1 Samuel. And then 2 Samuel chapters 1 through 4, you see David as king of Judah. He first began to reign in Judah only and then um, moved from his um, capital, if you will, in Hebron up to uh, Jerusalem. And finally, when he moved up to Jerusalem to be ruler over all the tribes... Um, He finally cast out the Jebusites. Uh, I believe it was the tribe of Benjamin that had not cast out the Jebusites and they lived with them there uh, in Jerusalem. And uh, David finally did what was supposed to be done in purifying that place and casting out the pagans. So then he moved. Saul from the tribe of Benjamin? Probably. I trust you on that one.
1: Which always confused me as to why Hmm.
0: Yeah, it says, uh, chapter 9, verse 1, there was a man of Benjamin. Yep, you're right. Because since Genesis 49, we've known that the scepter will not depart from Judah.
1: handsome, <laughs> now.
0: Uh, And then you see David as king over Israel in chapters 5 through 20 of 2 Samuel, and then the Samuel appendix in 21 through 24. We'll see if we get there today. All right, so um, some of the message in theology here. Israel had this strong desire for kingship. They had rejected the Lord as her king and longed to be like the nations. This was anticipated even in Deuteronomy 17. There were instructions about this happening. The Lord knew this was going to happen, and it's in other places too. And they wanted someone to fight their battles, and of course, in, you see in the Goliath story, Samuel, or excuse me, Saul did not do that. They forgot that God had been fighting their battles for them in Egypt and in Jericho and in other places. Uh, do you remember what comes right before the first commandment in the Ten Commandments? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and of slavery. That's right. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Growing up at our uh, our church in North Carolina, we would recite the Ten Commandments in the King James every Sunday morning in church. Um, and the Lord spake and said, you know, that's, that's how it went. But you cannot recite those Ten Commandments without, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of slavery, out of the house of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Um, and that is the historical prologue to this covenant document where these stipulations are given, these commands are given. What this means is they have forgotten to read the law. They don't know who the Lord their God is. They don't. They have not been reminded that he is the one who brought them out of Egypt. They've forgotten that he's the one who has fought their battles. And they have rejected him as Lord. And now they are looking to their own. Uh, strength, their own human strength, to put together this plan. Well, all the other nations have kings. If we're going to keep up with the, with the rest of the world, we got to get on their level and play their game. And that's what they're wanting—rejecting God.
1: That sounds a lot like some churches today, making sure they don't get left behind with new ideologies in America. Of, yeah, of changing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's just a temptation of the human heart, and we see it for those who... And Lord, protect us from it. Those who fail to, um, to soak in God's Word and to speak of it when you rise and when you sit and to write it on the doorpost of your home. Lord, save us from that. Keep us from that same temptation. And we pray that this church would be a church that uh, does not go that way. And that requires vigilance on our part and faithfulness and dependence on the Spirit, because there's no way we're going to do that on our own. Other thoughts on that? All right, so here comes uh, David. Uh, Saul has been reigning. Um, They're up against the Philistines. There is this really important... uh, I'll just use the word dichotomy in this battle before Goliath. Goliath clothed in... Scale armor. Now, some might say this is reading too far into the text. This scale armor, reminiscent of um, a snake-like skin. You have the seed of the serpent represented. Because what was said, Goliath said, "If, if I win, you will serve me. And you will serve the Philistines. But if you win, we will serve you. So, really, the question at hand was Israel, are you going to submit yourselves to evil, to the seed of the serpent, or are you going to crush his head? Which is literally what David did Um, as as he chopped off his head. Um, How did I get down that road? Yeah, the scale armor. Is, I guess I was talking about. All right, so, so here Saul, Saul wouldn't go out to fight. They were looking for somebody to go out to fight. Along came this, uh, this guy, this unexpected boy, shepherd boy, who had seven older brothers, and they assumed that one of those... that the oldest one would, would be uh, chosen. Um, have you noticed... they almost... some of them really wanted another brother, not, not David... Um, verse chapter 1st Samuel 16 verse 6 why did people think Eliab the oldest I believe he was the oldest why did they think Eliab should be king and then why did Samuel say no that's not a good reason Like, no. yeah why did Samuel think so because he's tall, because he's tall. <laughs> it's his appearance or in the height of his stature and God says because I've rejected him the Lord does not see as man sees Isn't there also something about the
1: firstborn?
0: yeah absolutely like Ab- absolutely yes and so it would make sense to start with the firstborn, but, but they went down through. But was, yes, the fact that he was the firstborn, but also something else that you know, made, made him stood out was, oh, he's tall and handsome. We just went down that path. We know how that goes. Um, and then they get down to, well, there remains the youngest in verse 11. And Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. Samuel said, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Um, You know, the physical descriptions are fascinating uh, in in this. Uh, He's not tall. He doesn't have that appearance of power. He was the youngest. He was the least expected. Um, But he was the one who was chosen. Now there is legitimately scholarly debate over what the word ruddy means. Some say it means, um, like, of a an outdoorsy complexion, and some say it means redheaded. <laughs> I think we know it means redheaded.
1: <laughs> uh,
0: and, and that is a legitimate scholarly debate over what that word means, so... Um, anyway. But more than any of that, he was a man after God's own heart. And this is something I learned as I was doing this study from a couple different sources. They highlighted this. Literally, it means the Lord has sought for himself a man according to his own heart. So it doesn't mean that David's heart was, how do I say, it, it wasn't the merit of David's godliness that got him anointed king. It was the man that God's heart had chosen, that got him anointed king. It rests on God's choice and God's design and God's plan. Uh, and it reminds us of that unconditional love that God sets on His people, and that he's the main actor in these books. Remember we talked about that at the beginning of the historical books. we got to see, why, David? Because God is the one at work. And David is the one who was chosen according to God's own heart. And he wasn't perfect but we show that God used him and had chosen him and anointed him and set his spirit on him and, uh, and he ruled with, um, with great godliness but also with great sin. Yes?
1: Um, when you mentioned that, that um, God sees differently than man sees, uh, verse 24 of 17 says, when all the men of Israel saw the man, talking about Goliath, mm-hmm. they were greatly afraid, and if you go to verses 45 and 40, uh, 45, so this is the whole buildup before David goes out to meet Goliath. And 24 is the men saw humanly, mm. and David sees with God's eyes mm. what can be done. Yeah. So the dichotomy there.
0: Can you parse out that difference? What is it that David saw?
1: Well, David, well let me read it. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with sword, spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. If he's already knowing that, that the battle will be given.
0: That's right. That's right. Because as we saw in his Psalms, he is the one depending on the Lord to lead. He is the one trusting that the Lord's going to conquer. And that shows us the same. It's, it's, I mean, it's really appropriate looking at our sermon this morning. As Jesus faced evil, as Jesus faced that, that great enemy, He knew that it was the Father's plan to conquer that enemy and to crush the head of the evil one forever. Not just the seed of the serpent, but the serpent Himself. Um, Jesus was crushing all evil on that day in full dependence upon God because He saw, as John pointed out, He saw as David saw, even clearer than David saw, past the appearance of, into the heart, into the fact that God is fighting that battle. Apparently I got ahead of myself. You see that next paragraph talks about David and Goliath with the scale armor. Um, And it's, it's, you see that last line of there, in there, David is a type of Christ, not of you. (laughs) This is a very common, you've heard it, I've used it as an example before, very common misapplication where you say you should just stand strong and fight your battles, like, fight your giants like David did, and, and be, um, be courageous. No, with, they, with Goliath as the representative of that evil, Jesus has fought our enemy for us. And we live in his victory and continue to um, push back against that darkness, but it's all by his strength. He's the one who's done it, he's the one who's doing it. And so we have to um, we have to be in David. We were the we were not David out fighting Goliath. We are represented in the cowering Israelites back in the camp who, who can't do anything about it. But in David, we achieve that victory over the enemy. We're not done necessarily in 1 Samuel, but I want us to get to 2 Samuel 7. So let's flip over there. 2 Samuel 7 is the first appearance of the prophet Nathan. The prophet Samuel, Judge Samuel, had died in chapter 1 Samuel chapter 25. And now this is the first mention of Nathan, and he continues for a handful of chapters here in the, in the middle of this book. <clears throat> I'm trying to figure out how to break this down. Let's look in verse ten. Second Samuel chapter seven, verse ten. Let's start in verse nine. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Who's he speaking of here in verse 12? It's a trick question. Who's he talking about in verse 13? Verse 13 says, and I shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever.
1: Jesus,
0: Jesus ultimately,
1: yes.
0: (laughs) Yes, yes. But who else is also being talked about in verses 12 and 13? Solomon and the literal temple and then the fulfillment of all that in Jesus. All right, so um, because we've heard Jesus talk about raising up that eternal house. In his body. After three days, he raised up the temple in his body. And that is where we commune with the Father, is in Jesus. Which is part of why communion is so rich. Because it's the temple where God has promised to be with his people and to bless his people. And as we partake of Christ's body and blood, we are partaking of this presence of God. Now, it doesn't mean that we literally view the elements as filled with this supernatural presence. But Christ has promised to be with us at that table. I'm getting down a rabbit hole. Verses 12 and 13 is a promise, yes, about Solomon, but it is also ultimately a promise about Jesus. Verse 14, I I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, um, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. That's speaking of Solomon. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, who I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That is an incredible promise. That is what we call the Davidic covenant. And um, let me me stick to the notes. Uh, The blessing that God promised to pour out on the world through Abraham is now coming in the form of this kingdom. And so through this kingdom, God is going to bless the nations around. Uh, already we've started to see those who are being brought in. And then you fast forward a thousand years, and now Christ has come. And um, though the kingdom of Israel as you know, its own autonomous authority is, is gone, actually it, that, that was um, destroyed at the time of the exile, Still, Christ came in through, it was from these Jews then that the blessing came for all the nations. Jesus from that people came now to bring in those from the whole world to be that, finally, be that blessing that was promised that Abraham was going to be to the world. The earthly kingdom illustrated, but did not complete the promise. Flip over to Psalm 89. I'm remembering correctly, this one was written by Ethan the Ezraite. Yes. It was written by Ethan. So this was long after the monarchy had fallen apart. This is a um, this is really a cry, wondering when that kingdom was dissolved. When there was no longer a son of David sitting on the throne in Israel. Ethan the Ezraite is asking that question that everybody was feeling. Look in verse 49. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old by which, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? You promised that the line of David was never going to leave the throne. You said there's going to be a king forever. And now, Lord, look at us, verse 50. Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations. This is that question saying, Lord, there's got to be something besides this literal, physical throne that you're doing. And, and we, you get to Mark, and you get to the life of Jesus, and they're still looking for that literal throne. They're still expecting that throne because they're looking again, as man sees on the outward appearance, on the appearance of power, And they're not seeing God's plan through the suffering servant to redeem through physical suffering, which is spiritual victory. And now, of course, the seed of David is on the throne. And the seed of David will never depart from the throne. Jesus is reigning now and for all eternity. The shoot from the stump of Jesse then becomes an essential source of hope for these people. When there's that promise in Isaiah 11. Um, Y'all know that promise in Isaiah 11. There would come a, a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Flip over to Zechariah as well. It's in one of the uh, it's in the Minor Prophets, the last twelve before the New Testament, and I always have to run through the order in my head to find it. And I always get it confused with Zephaniah. All right, Zechariah, chapter nine. It's on page one thousand one hundred ninety-two in my Bible. Zechariah 9 verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation Is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth they were waiting for this king to come on a colt the foal of a donkey to be this fulfillment of what seemed to be a promise that was over and then so when jesus says you're going to find a a colt tied and he comes in on a colt he's claiming all this as him and then lastly look at luke 1 Verses 32 and 33. I'm going to start in verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over his, the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. What a claim! In light of this Davidic covenant, in light of what Israel has endured, in light of their sin and God's faithfulness to save them anyway. In light of our sin and our unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness to save us anyway, in the one king who did it so perfectly. You know, we, we talk about Christ having, you know, exercising perfectly the offices of prophet, priest, and king this is rich as we look at christ as the king of the davidic line this is just king though we're not even talking about prophet and priest who christ is and what he fulfills in the old testament is mind-blowing okay questions right now before we even look at a few more examples i know we really just kind of flew through the content of samuel i maybe i can just recommend go watch the bible project to get some you know details of specific stories and things that are going on or just read it it really is a fascinating read um as david was the good shep- was a shepherd protecting the sheep so uh christ is the good shepherd as um well let's just look uh can i have somebody flip to first samuel chapter 2 i'm still in luke um somebody flip to first samuel chapter 2 Read, Deanna, thanks. Could you read verses 1 and 10? Yes, please.
1: My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. Verse 10. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Luke 1 verse
0: 46 starts very similarly. It says, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. As Hannah had said, "I will exult in the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior." And it talks about it's a it's a song of remembrance of how He's helped His uh, servant Israel, um, in remembrance of Christ of God's mercy on His people. <clears throat> so it was this this song of Hannah that anticipated this king, which very soon was came and was David, and the song of Mary also anticipates this uh, faithfulness of God to bring the king as they both exult in the Lord and their songs. Uh, and in some ways, that song of Hannah sets the trajectory, if not the outline of the books of, of the book of Samuel, the books of Samuel. And then um, David. Yeah, David was a rejected king. Um, no, no, let me let me let me reapply that. Jesus was the rejected king. And as Israel was rejecting God's authority by begging for a human king, similarly, Jesus came to his own and his own did not know him. They, they uh, forsook him. Uh, as God was uh, there leading his people, they said, no, we, we want nothing to do with you. We want our own kind of leader, just the way that uh, the people at the time of Christ said, no, we don't really want anything to do with you. We're going to keep our own leadership here. Um, David was anointed by the Spirit. So was Christ at his baptism. Um, David was the unexpected king who doesn't look the part. Um, He has beautiful eyes and apparently really nice hair. But um, he was the young one. He was the little one. He wasn't tall. Um, Christ is described in Isaiah 53. There's nothing about him that would draw us to him. There's nothing in his appearance that would make us desire him unexpected in that way also uh, who can what good comes from Nazareth? You, you remember that and then he was rejected also by his own family as he went back. Uh, David was the victorious king and he ruled well in giving victory to the nation but Christ did it in the in the most ultimate sense and you see that in Romans 8 nothing can separate you from this victory that Christ has accomplished and given to you. Um, I think one of my favorite stories in all the Old Testament is Second Samuel 9, so um, I think we should flip there and just take a quick look at it. If you want a bunch of specific comparisons about how Jesus is the ultimate Davidic king, that's the last point on the sheet, come look at uh, Nancy Guthrie's book. Um, I have the page numbers marked there, but it, it's just a chart, page after page after page, of charts of comparison, these verses of how Christ fulfills these things that happened um, in the life of David. Uh, But we'll end here with 2 Samuel chapter 9. David is ruling. Saul is dead. And even now, Saul's son, that is David's beloved friend, Jonathan, also has died. And David said... Uh, 2 Samuel 9, verse 1. Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I might show him kindness? Hold on. Why would David show kindness to anybody in the house of Saul? Do you remember what Saul put him through? Do you remember how many times David spared Saul's life? You think he would hold a grudge and say, maybe I won't kill him, but I'm not going to show kindness. No, David is seeking out how he can show kindness to his enemy. But why? into verse 1, for Jonathan's sake. He's just looking for somebody to show kindness to because of Jonathan. Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. So this is, this is somebody in the house of Saul, a servant of the house of Saul. This guy's name was Ziba. Ziba. And they called him to David and the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of him to? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. So here is news from the servant of somebody in the house of Saul that there's this one guy who's the son of David, who's crippled. Now, this kind of crippling was not, uh, there's no social honor around this. In fact, it was dishonor. Uh, He is not someone who would ever be deemed worthy of being in the king's presence. And the king said to him, verse four, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Makir, the son of Amiel Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Makir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar, and Mephibosheth was his name. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. That contrasts so starkly with the homage that was paid to Christ this morning and in, in the story of his crucifixion. This is, the, this is Mephibosheth who saw this kindness Of David and fell on his face before the gracious king. And uh, he answered. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, don't fear. For I will show you kindness. For the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? You can see how this foreshadows who Christ is and what he's done for his people. Who are we, dead dogs? There's nothing about us worthwhile except that we're the son of Jesus. That's, of course, not the analogy used in the New Testament. But as Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan, it was for the sake of Jonathan that he was given all this blessing in the inheritance in the land of the house of Saul. And so you and I, because we are in Christ, are given that blessed inheritance, even as dead dogs, such as we. I think it's a beautiful story of a of a man who understood that his role even as the king perhaps the most powerful king of his day his job wasn't to seek his own glory but to seek the glory of god and and he foreshadowed um that who christ was in in such clear ways so um i'm grateful for that story as you can tell i like that story it's an encouragement to me now let's pray Dear, gracious God, you rule with all authority and you were working this plan of salvation through this kingship so that we might be brought in and benefit from your rule and your authority. So would we place ourselves in our proper position as recipients and beneficiaries of your reign. I pray that we'd be grateful That we would fall down in true homage. Not this false mocking worship that Jesus received as he was crucified. But would we be grateful knowing that you are going to let us sit at your table forever. Even when we are dead dogs as we are. Yet because we are in Christ, you have raised us up to honor Would that be our fuel and our encouragement today and every day? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.